Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. We have a philosophical duty to perform when we adjust loss, he told us. When we do our adjustments of loss, we frustrate and negate all the bland promises of insurance. We act out in our small way, one of the great unbending principles of life. Nothing is sure, nothing is certain, nothing is risk-free, nothing is fully covered, nothing is forever. It is a noble calling, he would say, go out into the world and do your duty. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC, and in each episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have the novelist William Boyd with us, and we'll be discussing his 1998 novel, Armadillo, which is about a loss adjuster. William is the multi-award winning author of 16 novels, including such wonderful books as Brazzaville Beach, The New Confessions, Any Human Heart and Love is Blind. However, my boss is most impressed by the fact that William was asked by the estate of Ian Fleming to write a James Bond novel solo. He's also a screenwriter, a playwright, a film director, and a journalist. William even managed to perpetrate an art hoax around a fictitious artist, Nat Tate. He is a CBE, he's a literary hero of mine, and to be honest, I cannot believe that he's on this podcast. So William, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Peter. Delighted to be here. Right, so I, I say an absolute pleasure, personal pleasure, personal honour. So thank you so much for being here. My first question normally, which is to insurance people, is to say, how on earth did you get into insurance? But obviously, that's a completely inappropriate question for you. So I, I guess the equivalent is, how did you get into novel writing? Is, is it something that you just always wanted to do? Um, I, th- I think from about the age of 17 or 18, when I was wondering and worrying what my life would be like as an adult, I came to the conclusion that I had to be an artist of some kind. I felt very sure that I wouldn't be able to do a proper job. And so I needed that kind of um, slightly rackety artist's life and initially wanted to be a painter and thought about going to art school. But my father uh, very quickly made his disapproval clear. And so I switched to literature and I thought, well, I'll Maybe I can be a novelist, but of course I didn't know a single novelist. I didn't know a publisher. I didn't know anybody in the in the, in that world, and so I had to kind of find out how you became a novelist. And um, in a way, it was a long learning curve. And slowly but surely, I started writing, and I had some modest early successes that convinced me I wasn't kidding myself. And so I just persevered, and um, slowly but surely, I published short stories. I started doing literary journalism. I did my university degree. I went to Oxford to do a PhD. I ended up teaching at Oxford. Um, and all the while I was writing and I wrote some unpublished novels. And then in 1981, my first novel, A Good Man in Africa, was published and I was sort of off and running. And the show is still on the road, I'm glad to say. <laughs> <laughs> And and you and you were a mere attender, twenty nine years old when when a good man in Africa came out. Is that right? Uh, twenty eight, twenty eight years old. Yes, I, I, I apologise. In fact, it was. Uh, it, it's funny. It was in um, nineteen seventy nine, the end of nineteen seventy nine, when I was twenty seven. But I had to wait over a year for it to be published. So. For me, 1980 is a horrible gap of uh, in, in my biography because I was waiting to become a published novelist, but it seemed to crawl by. And uh, <laughs> um, I, some of the pieces I wrote in 1980 are rather bitter, <laughs> so it's because uh, I was waiting to for my my life to begin, as it were, uh, my artistic life to begin. 
as you say, it was the beginning of, of a number of novels. And, and the one we're, which we're here to talk about is, is Armadillo, yeah. uh, which came out in, in 1998. Uh, now, obviously, anyone who is listening to the podcast who has not read um, Armadillo, do not worry. We're not going to give any spoilers uh, or anything like that. Um, and I've already mentioned that it's uh, about a, a loss adjuster. Yes. Uh, a, man, a man called uh, Lorimer Black. And but could you explain just a little bit more about, about the plot and uh, and what the general thrust of the novel is? Yes, it's quite interesting how I entered the world of insurance because I was actually writing a film which was about um, Lloyd's of London. And I discovered from talking to somebody that there was one massive insurance fraud you could pull off just once in your life. And um, I was writing this film about this insurance fraud and you could make millions and millions of pounds, and, you know, and, um, but you could only do it once. And John Schlesinger was going to direct this film, the great John Schlesinger. And I, was, I was, had some friends who worked at Lloyd's, and one of them said, you know, you really ought to meet these loss adjuster chaps. <laughs> and so I did meet a couple of them. And I was immediately sidetracked by the world of, the, of these what I call specialist loss adjusters. And so my imagination took off, and I started to research the world of insurance and loss adjusting and saw what a fantastic metaphor, if you like, it was for me and, and, and the particular themes that I write about. And, uh, and so Armadillo was born. It's a, it's a story of a, of a young man who, because of events in his past, has changed his name, who kind of disguises himself. And he's a brilliant loss adjuster. You know, whatever, whatever job he's doing, he changes his accent, his identity, his clothing in order to make himself more amenable to the person he's adjusting. And he's incredibly successful. And he works for this small firm with a tyrannical boss um, and they're very successful. But Lorimer's life is in a way a kind of lie. He's created this carapace around himself and slowly but surely in the course of the novel, it begins to fall apart and, and reveal the man beneath Absolutely. And, and you're particularly famous for your novels that take a single character and kind of span it over the whole sweep of the 20th century, kind of from country to country and decade to decade. Um, things like The New Confessions, um, Sweet Caress, Any Human Heart. Um, but the Armadillo is, is very, very different. So how would you describe the tone and style of the book? Well, I, I do write these what I call whole life novels, you know, these cradle to grave novels. And they're usually very long, nearly you know, 500 pages and cover decades of history, um, recent history. Um, but I do also write novels that are much more concentrated in time. And all my novels are different from each other, I think. So I don't feel I'm, I'm uh, you know, pigeonholing myself at all. And uh, Armadillo, I think, is one of my comic novels or what I call serious comic novels. Um, a Good Man in Africa, Stars and Bars, um, Armadillo, um, Ordinary Thunderstorms, uh, and my latest novel, Trio, which also takes place over one summer. So I, I don't confine myself to centuries or decades. I can write books that uh, cover a short span of time and depends entirely on the story you're telling. Um, there is no preconception or, or pattern or model I follow. It's just the story I want to tell. And Armadillo just flash back a fair amount as well, but it's essentially a story that uh, covers a couple of months, I think, um, in one year. 
don't specify the year, but it's a very contemporary novel. Uh, it's written in 1998, and I think readers would assume it's it's taking place today, even it's you know 22 years later. It has a very contemporary feel about it, like some of my other novels. I'm not, I don't always write about the past or the recent past. I do occasionally write about today, and uh, Armadillo is one of those novels. And you mentioned that you sort of became interested in insurance and Lloyd's through a different means. And how did you go about your research? Presumably, I know kind of you, you do an enormous amount of research before you even put pen to paper. So, so what sort of research did you do to really get under the skin of, of the insurance world? Well, it was odd. I knew I knew quite a few people who worked at Lloyd's, oddly. And so I, they were friends of mine. So I was able to ask them questions. And I have a, another very close friend who is a very successful jeweler and he had been a victim of an armed robbery at his at his shop and had been very severely loss adjusted by, by a south african loss terrifying south african loss adjuster and so his experience of claiming insurance for his robbery in a way was a, a perfect model for how loss adjusting can sometimes give you a terrible shock just when you think you're about to be uh, recompensed for the losses you've incurred. So, and then you know, I could read about it. But a lot of it, funnily enough, is once I had the the idea for it, I I could I could make it up, you know, in a way. <laughs> and I find in my novels that very often where your imagination leads you, for example, the creation of this specialist firm GGH Limited, very often it uh, is surprisingly close to the truth, whatever that is. And so um, once I had got the authenticity of the, of the world right, um, I felt happy and confident to use my imagination. Same in a novel I wrote called Stars and Bars, which is about the auctioneering world. I did a certain amount of research. I have friends who worked for Christie's and Sotheby's. But in fact, my auction house is a sort of slightly over-the-top, grotesque version of the real thing, just as I think in Armadillo, which is a comedy, my insurance world is a slightly you know, enhanced, exaggerated version of the world that exists out there. But you may say I haven't gone far enough, Peter. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, so I use my imagination as uh, having got a solid basis of fact and authenticity, then I let my imagination work. Bearing in mind that the novel is about an insurance fraud, I'm, I'm not going to comment on its accuracy or, or otherwise. <laughs> More than my job is worth, I think. Right, right. But yes, there, there, were, there, were, there were certainly things about it which uh, kind of struck home. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Um, and also, I, I, I am, I'm an insurance lawyer uh, and I kind of advise on coverage issues. And I, you know, I, from a personal level, I was just touched that there is, there is, a, there is an insurance coverage issue at, at, you know, <laughs> at, as part of the plot. It, it, uh, yeah, oh, good. It's, uh, it's nice to know that my job is is replicated in art somewhere. Yes. Kind of, somewhere. <laughs> Sorry, I just interrupted. I do like my characters to have proper jobs, even though I don't have a proper job. And I, you know, I've written novels about primatologists, you know, loss adjusters, um, surgeons, and private detectives, all sorts of things. So I, uh, I venture into worlds that I'm not familiar with, but I do make sure I've done my research. Armadillo's plot is about insurance. Um, we've uh, we've discussed that. And when I first read it in 1998, basically that's all I saw. Um, I had uh, two young children at the time, and all I wanted was just to read a book for for entertainment. And it works extraordinarily well um, at that level. Mm. Um, but when I reread it recently for this podcast, I realised that actually, uh, and you've already mentioned that you use insurance as as a metaphor, and, and we'll come on to that, in, and we'll explore that in a little bit more detail in a moment. 
Um, but it's clear that there, there, there is a second level to, to the novel. Yeah. Um, and in order to introduce that, um, you very kindly agreed to read uh, a short section um, from from Armadillo, um, and which well, do you want to set it up and then sort of read it through to us? Yes. In Armadillo, I mean, I, I fracture the narrative, and there's a story of uh, Lorimer Black's uh, loss-adjusting life, but he also keeps a kind of journal, which he calls the Book of Transfiguration. He's a chronic insomniac as well, uh, Lorimer, and it records his past and some sort of ideas he has, reflections on the, on the story, if you like, that's underway. So they're set in italics, and they punctuate the, the narrative, the kind of pauses in the slightly thriller-esque story of the insurance fraud and Lorimer's loss adjusting. And this is one of them. It's, it's, uh, they're all numbered. This is uh, called number 32, George Hogg's philosophy of insurance. And George Hogg is Lorimer's terrifying boss uh, at GGH Limited. What does insurance do, really do, Hogg would ask us? And we would say, diligently echoing the textbooks, that insurance's primary function is to substitute certainty for uncertainty as regards the economic consequences of disastrous events. It gives a sense of security in an insecure world. It makes you feel safe then, Hogg would follow up. Yes, we would reply. Something tragic, catastrophic, troublesome or irritating may have occurred, but there is recompense in the form of a preordained sum of money. All is not entirely lost. We are covered after a fashion, protected to a degree against the risk, the bad luck of a heart attack, a car smash, a disability, a fire, a theft, a loss, things that can and will affect us all at some or many times in our lives. That attitude, Hogg would say, is fundamentally immoral. Immoral, dishonest and misleading. Such an understanding promotes and bolsters the fond notion that we will all grow up, be happy, healthy, find a job, fall in love, start a family, earn a living, retire, enjoy a ripe old age and die peacefully in our sleep. This is a seductive dream, Hogwood snarl, the most dangerous fantasy. All of us know that in reality, life never works out like this. So what did we do? We invented insurance, which makes us feel we have half a chance, a shot at achieving it, so that even if something goes wrong, mildly wrong or hideously wrong, we have provided some buffer against random disaster. But, Hogg would say, why should a system that we've invented not possess the same properties as the life we lead? Why should insurance be solid and secure? What right do we have to think that the laws of uncertainty which govern the human condition, all human endeavor, all human life, do not apply to this artificial construct, this sop that affects us to soften the blows of filthy chance and evil luck? Hogg would look at us, contempt and pity shining from his eyes. We have no right, he would say solemnly. Such an attitude, such beliefs were deeply, fundamentally unphilosophical. And this is where we, the loss adjusters, came in. We had a vital role to play. We were the people who reminded all the others that nothing in this world is truly certain. We were the rogue element, the unstable factor in the ostensibly stable world of insurance. I am insured. So at least I'm safe, we like to think. Not so, Hogg would say, shaking a pale finger. Uh-uh, no way. We have a philosophical duty to perform when we adjust loss, he told us. When we do our adjustments of loss, we frustrate and negate all the bland promises of insurance. We act out in our small way, one of the great unbending principles of life. 
Nothing is sure. Nothing is certain. Nothing is risk-free. Nothing is fully covered. Nothing is forever. It is a noble calling, he would say. Go out into the world and do your duty. Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. And and I have to say, when I read that recently, I, I laughed out loud because right. um, over recent months on a completely different project, I've been writing quite a lot about insurance and I've been increasingly thinking about the philosophy of insurance. What is it? Mm. How, how does it fit into society? What part does it play? In society, so and, and actually, I was already beginning to sketch out my theory on the philosophy of insurance, um, a phrase which I thought I had invented. I should add, um, and then I suddenly saw it in your novel. And I thought, ah, oh, someone got there first. Yes. And, uh, yeah, so, George Hogg beat you to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and uh, so, insurance at that level—that the nothing is certain, nothing is secure approach. Um, and it's a loss adjuster's role to create that uncertainty. Then becomes this, this much deeper metaphorical, philosophical interpretation of, of the novel as a whole. Do you want to explain that a little bit more? Well, I think it's, it's to do with a, a very human desire to feel somehow safe in a, in a random and haphazard and absurd and cruel world. It's a, it's a theme of mine that I've explored in, I think, probably every novel I've written, this idea of, of good luck and bad luck, um, that the aggregate of good luck you have and bad luck you have, in a way, is the story of your life. And um, there's a, a human urge to somehow, you know, naturally enough, to try to minimize the bad luck or to protect yourself. And I think this is where insurance comes in. And in, in the novel, I kind of emphasizes by giving Lorimer Black an obsession with armor. He collects helmets and he knows all about armor. And of course, insurance, if you like, is a kind of armor that we don to protect ourselves against the vicissitudes and mishaps of life. And so there's this running parallel in the, in the novel of armor insurance and can armor really protect you? Can insurance really protect you? And of course it can't. Um, so I make clear in the novel. So there's this, this idea that somehow insurance is a, a sort of concept that will protect you against the human condition, you know, that somehow if, you, if you're heavily insured, you're more safe than somebody who isn't insured. And it is a kind of fantasy uh, I'm claiming in the novel. And this is something that Lorimer finds out himself, because not only is he interested in armor, not only does he have a, a collection of helmets, this new identity he's created for himself as Lorimer Black is also a form of, of armor and an attempt to insure himself against the strange family he comes from and, and his, his odd and haphazard past. But of course, all these things are doomed because, you know, bad luck is bad luck and good luck is good luck and there's nothing much you can do about it. But, uh, you know, you could, you could argue that religion is an attempt to insure yourself against the human condition. Um, but uh, in, insurance is a very interesting metaphor to explore. It's the same kind of attitude of mind. And, and of course, the title of the book, Armadillo, kind of gets to the very heart of that, that image that we, we try to protect ourselves. Yes. It's, it's Armadillo in the sense of, of a Spanish soldier, isn't it? R yes. Rather than the animal. Yes. I mean, the Spanish word armadillo actually means little armed man. And that obviously they saw these strange creatures running around in Central America and called them because the armadillos do look like they're wearing plated armor. So 
the name stuck, but it actually it's the literal meaning of the word little armed man. Uh, and uh, on the cover of the book, there's a picture of a man with a cardboard box over his head as if, it, as, yes, exactly, as if he's somehow wearing a helmet and is protected. But it's that, that in a way is a visual, a visual kind of analog of what the book is trying to say. But the next level of the novel is that Lorimer is obviously trying to use various things to provide insurance for him. But at the very same time, he is being used as insurance by other people. Initially, innocently, it's just his family, harmlessly. They, you know, he's the wealthiest member of the family, so they regularly ask him for money and all the rest of it. Um, but then obviously in ways which we can't discuss, um, and more sinisterly, he becomes insurance for others kind of you know, later on in the novel. Yes, he becomes kind of fall guy, a patsy, doesn't he? And uh, and uh, but he figures it out because he's smart, Lorimer. <laughs> um, but uh, and he he takes steps. But uh, yes, exactly. He's he's being used. His very skills become the weapons that are turned against him almost. Yeah, and it makes me wonder because obviously insurance is, as you rightly point out, a, a brilliant analogy for for what we all try to do in life. And it just makes me wonder, but yet yours is the only novel that I've come across, which has insurance as both a central theme of the novel and the underlying metaphor of the novel. So you are far more widely read than I am. So I don't know whether you've come across others, um, but I haven't. No, I think... I think it, you you could argue. I'm happy to be proved wrong. That's the only novel that takes insurance as its dominant theme. I mean, Dickens famously uh, has a, a insurance in some of his novels, and um, but they're not the dominant theme. They're not, uh, not the construct upon which the whole novel is based. It's a bit like my novel um, Love Is Blind, which has as its central character a piano tuner. Um, I think it's the only novel about piano tuning as well. So uh, no, I, I can't. Think Think of another novel that, um, you know, there's, there are novels where insurance figures and insurers figure, but um, this novel is, uh, you know, all about insurance. Yeah. Which is, as an aside, if you could try to persuade some of your novelist friends to write novels about insurance, that, that would be great because it would give me future, future guests. Yeah, right. um, but, yes. but in many ways, that's slightly bizarre, isn't it? Because every single insurance claim is, is a short story, is a form of short story. It, it involves context, you know, the thing that is stolen, the thing that is burnt down. Yeah. Crisis, the disaster that needs insurance. Conflict, because there's that tension kind of as to whether the, the, the cover is going to be provided and ultimately conclusion. Now, I accept that a lot of those kind of insurance claims will form very, very dull short stories, that the story of someone stealing my CD collection is not going to be a Pulitzer Prize winner. But nonetheless, insurance is, you know, life is the ultimate loss adjuster and, and insurance is all to do with life. And I'm surprised there are more stories. Yeah, I think you're right. All all human life is there. And you you also left out the fact that um, in your very good list there, Peter, that actually it's the individuals as well. You could be you could be a, a multimillionaire or somebody whose caravan has burnt down. You know, so there's a sense in which all human society is part of the insurance world, and it's also something that every single person understands. So there's a universal aspect to insurance that I think, um, which I try to exploit in in, in this novel, uh, but I think it could be rich and fertile ground, I would say, for fiction. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. If you happen to know Haruki Murakami, if you could get him to write a novel, I'll be particularly grateful. <laughs> right, okay. 
Um, anyway, we are fast approaching Christmas. Um, so, dear listener, if you want to buy uh, a present for that insurance person in your life, um, I can highly recommend Armadillo. Um, if they prefer DVDs, then there is, I have in my hand here, a BBC adaptation um, of Armadillo that was back in 2001, 2002. 2001, yeah. Which was also written by William um, and includes uh, amongst its cast a very, very young Tom Hiddleston. But yeah, he's only on for about five seconds, but somehow he gets a second billing on, on, on the DVD. <laughs> and in fact, I have to say, William, my, my wife's book club is reading Armadillo at the moment. So, Oh, good. Excellent. It, it, it's already resulted in about four or five extra sales. So <laughs> um, the, the process of writing for TV, how does that differ from the process of writing the novel? I would imagine... Um, having never experienced either, um, that it must be quite frustrating, mustn't it? Where you have to constrain your your creativity into something which is more, you know, fixed to the the hour long episode. Absolutely, it's a different art form entirely. And I've written lots of articles banging on about this. Um, in a novel, you can do absolutely anything. It's a world of total freedom and liberty. When you turn to film and I do television in that, you enter a world of parameters compromises and impossibilities because it sounds very banal, but film is photography. There's one point of view, the camera lens, and that makes subjectivity very hard to do on film. And so adapting Armadillo, I would say at least 50% of the novel is not on screen, even though we had three hours as a miniseries. So we were able to do it better justice than an ordinary movie. But the frustration is that you just can't do so much on film and that you have to cut out stuff all the time, or you have to invent stuff in order to get around this problem of subjectivity, um, which bedevils the the art form. So it is a a huge change of mental gears when you, because I do both, uh, to move from the world of the novel to the world of a screenplay. uh, And you just have to kind of treat the industrial parameters and impossibilities with as much skill and and, uh, gracefulness as you can. But it is a complicated business adapting a book for the screen. And finally, let's move on to your latest novel, uh, your 16th, which is Trio, which was published in hardback in early October. Um, Regrettably, uh, Trio is not about insurance, which comes as a personal disappointment. But it is instead about, well, William, introduce us to Trio. Tell us what it's about. Well, it's actually about secret lives. Uh, it's a bit, there is a connection to Armadillo in the sense that Lorimer Black is really called Milomre Block. So he's leading a secret life. But this is, takes this idea of the people's secret lives one step further. And the three people involved in Trio, um, two women and a man, are have secret lives that slowly but surely overwhelm their public lives, if you like, the, the, the lives they present to the world. And the context for all this mayhem is a, a wacky swinging 60s movie, which is being shot in Brighton. The novel is set in 1968, in the summer of 1968. And um, as its background, it has this rather silly film that we seem to be making in those days with a a very stupid title and a rock star in it and an American film star. uh, uh, But it's really about how these people come to terms with the secrecy at the at the very heart of their lives. It's a comedy, but a bit like Armadillo again, there are darker currents swirling underneath and more serious themes than the light-hearted fun <laughs> on the surface would seem to suggest. Yeah, no, it, it, it's great. And it, it's, it's come out to some fantastic reviews as well. So you must be pleased with that. 
Yes, I'm very pleased. I mean, I'm a critic myself, so I know how that world works. And um, it can seem very unjust to the poor novelist when when they get slagged off. But luckily, I've had almost universally really great reviews for this book, which is is very gratifying. It's selling extremely well. So I think maybe that idea struck a chord or people, because it's, you know, it's funny, you know, maybe people in these straitened times we're living through want a bit of uh, light relief. but if you think there are similarities with Armadillo, actually, the more I think about it, if you read deeply, you'll see a more serious uh, subject uh, lurking under the surface. But it is actually, I think it's one of my comic novels. I would put it in that category along with Armadillo. Yeah, no, there are definitely some very serious undertones in it. It, uh, I say it strikes on a number of levels. And um, this is a silly point, so please just ignore me if you want to. But when I was looking at reviews online and particularly reader reviews rather than professional reviews, yes. there's one person who mentioned the fact that you, you use the word rebarbative in every single novel that you write. Yes. And, and sure enough, it is in both Armadillo and in Trio. I don't know whether that's a deliberate thing or whether it's just a favourite word of yours. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of words I use all the time. I use the word refulgent as well. <laughs> yes. It's now become a kind of tick. Even my sister said, why do you keep using that word for sort of beige? I call it, you know, done, done colored. You know, I use that. Or I think every single writer does it. Um, you have your own vocabulary, which you reach for as you're writing. And inevitably, if you've written 16 novels like me, there will be a few repetitions. But um, I make no apologies for them at all. And uh, it's uh, it comes with the territory as far as I'm concerned. But I'm, there are many more favorite words in there that I, I use and reuse. Um, I, but I, And I don't even attempt to, you know, I can recognize them, but I don't even attempt to erase them. You know, it's just my style. That's it, you know. Exactly. Your fingerprint on on the novel itself. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I will quote from the the Guardian review um, of it, which it says, uh, such brilliantly drawn, often grotesque characters make Trio Boyd's funniest book since 1998's Armadillo. So so there you have it. That draws draws us around in full circle to, to where we've begun. And I think there'll be more on Trio on your Instagram site. Um, is that right? Yes, yes. Which is uh, um, at William Boyd Novelist. So how's that going? Uh, very well, actually. I've, I only started it about three weeks ago and I'm, I'm heading for 400 followers already. So I'm, I'm posting you know, more than one normally does. I'm sort of posting every day or every second day just to try and build up a head of steam because apparently uh, I was persuaded to start Instagram. It's a great way of selling books. So I thought, well, I must I must do my bit. But actually, it's very work-based. It's very much, it's not about what I had for supper or what my house looks like. Um, it's about my novels and my films. For example, I'm going to post quite a lot of stuff about the, the one film I've directed, which is a World War One movie called The Trench. So there'll be some interesting bits and pieces about The Trench. So I've made it deliberately and, and sort of ruthlessly work-based rather than isn't my life wonderful? You know, so it's, it's about the work. Yeah. And, and actually, I, I watched The Trench a couple of nights ago um, because you mentioned it in, when we were having email exchanges and it is a wonderful film. I mean, it is as we've been discussing outside of the podcast, it, it is it is meditative. It is, yeah, it, it, it's a very impressive film and, and an amazing cast, bearing in mind, as you're saying, that, that they were all very young actors at the time. So it's about, uh, it's a, it's about two days 
of waiting before the Battle of the Somme. The Battle of the Somme was postponed. Uh, it was meant to take place at the end of June, but it was postponed to July the 1st. And it's about these young soldiers who are waiting to go over the top. Um, they do go over the top at the end, but it's more about what they're like and what their lives are like. And it's, a, it's an attempt to kind of strip away the myths of World War I and look very closely at the uh, nature of the soldiers who participated. So the cast is extremely young. We had 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds actors. And I also insisted on having no famous actors in it so that you wouldn't be distracted. But as it's turned out, at least half a dozen of them have become extremely famous actors since I gave them their big break, um, <laughs> including uh, Killian Murphy and uh, Ben Wishaw and uh, Danny Dyer and most famous of all, Daniel Craig, who, uh, who plays the sergeant overlooking this unruly bunch of young soldiers in the trenches waiting for the battle to begin. Daniel Craig, whatever happened to him? Yes, I, I, I think he still lists that as his finest moment. <laughs> well, he's 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 a fantastic actor, of course, um, Daniel, a really brilliant actor. And I've done two films with him. I did The Trench, but I also did, wrote an adaptation of Evening War's Sword of Honor trilogy, which is World War II. And uh, Daniel plays the lead in that. So we have worked together uh, quite a lot. And um, he is a brilliant actor. And um, in a way, you know, he's a great Bond, but that's not his strength. I think his strength is as a, a, a visceral, um, almost American-style actor working in the, in the British tradition. And um, although we're going way off insurance now, I'm, I'm very happy with that. You mentioned Daniel Craig there, but obviously you've worked with two other Bonds, Piers Bosnan. But, but actually, at the time of recording, we are a, a few days after Sean Connery's death. Yes. And I know you worked with Sean as well. So I don't know whether, whether you want to say anything about him. Yes, I actually met Sean Connery uh, socially, as they say, before we worked together. He was in a film based on my first novel, A Good Man in Africa, which we shot in, uh, in South Africa. And um, it was only because of him that the film got made, in fact. And he was a fantastic support to the film and uh, an, a delightful man, a, a real pro. Uh, the film was very well made. It was very well organized. He was very happy. He gets to play golf in the film. <laughs> and uh, he, even while we were out in South Africa, he played a round of golf with Gary Player. So he was one happy man. But um, I sort of stayed in touch with him. And um, there's a funny story. In 1999, when, after I'd made my film, The Trench, we had a screening at the Edinburgh Film Festival. And Sean was the patron of the film festival. And because we worked together, we knew each other. He came along to a screening of the trench that we had. And I actually introduced him to Daniel Craig. And I think it may be the only time the two men met. But of course, at that stage, Daniel had no idea that he was going to be James Bond. But um, I did bring the two of them together, which is quite a, an iconic moment in film history. There are so many other things I would love to discuss. I'd love to discuss Nat Tate. I'd love to discuss your relationship with David Bowie and, and how that all happened. But sadly, we, we don't have time for that. And you've discussed it elsewhere. So if people want to know about that, then they can track down other interviews um, that you've done. Yes. But my final question is, um, I normally ask my guests uh, who are normally insurance uh, insiders, and what bit of advice they'd give to uh, someone who's thinking about entering the insurance industry, which is clearly, one thing, clearly inappropriate. So a different question for you, which is if there is someone out there within the insurance world who is thinking about writing a novel, what bit of advice would you give them? Asking for a friend, 
Well, I think that uh, I often give this advice. I mean, lots of people have ideas for novels and very good ideas for novels. And the question I ask them is, how does it end? And 99% of them said, well, I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> um, and so my advice to anybody thinking of writing a novel is, Think of your ending first. Think of a very good ending. Then you have a destination to write towards. And a good ending can save a mediocre novel, but a bad ending can sink a good novel. So it's very, very important. That's exactly how I write. I didn't start writing Armadillo till I knew exactly how it was going to end, almost to the extent I could write the last paragraph before I started on page one. So that's my, that's my tip. Um, think it through have a good ending, a good cathartic ending. It doesn't need to be dramatic. just has to deliver some sort of closure and, as I say, some, some catharsis. And the book will be rounded off and you will have something to write towards rather than scratching your head thinking what happens next. Well, that seems a very appropriate moment, Ed, which to end this particular podcast. So, William Boyd, thank you so much for joining me. That was a personal privilege, a personal honour, and I can now die a happy man. So thank you so much indeed. <laughs> well, thank, thanks, Peter. I, I enjoyed it enormously. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.